0: God, our Father, who is gracious and kind, loving, and merciful, was full, deserving of our hallelujah. Who has your hallelujah this morning? Hallelujah is the highest praise. Who are you praising this morning? Where's your mindset this morning? Where's your focus this morning? Because that's where your hallelujah is. And when we enter into corporate worship, the desire, the goal is to spur one another into godliness, into worship, into good works, where our minds are set upon the goodness of God. Consider this past week how faithful God has been to you. Consider this past month, this past year, how God has been good to you. And not just materially, But he's done some things for you physically as well. He's given you strength and energy. You're here in your right mind. You're able to sing. You're able to shout. But let's not even think about how he's been to you materially or physically. What has he done for you spiritually? When you were broken and destitute, at your lowest separated from the goodness and mercy of God. He has reached now to rescue and draw people to himself. And if you confess the name of Jesus Christ as Lord, you are one of his children. That in and of itself is deserving of your hallelujah. Not because you were worthy, not because you were well educated, not because you were all that, but God sovereignly chose the people for Himself. That should blow our minds sometimes. Why would He choose you? Why would He choose me? Don't you know where I was last night? Don't you know what I was thinking this morning? Don't he know where I came from. I used to be what I used to get into the way you prepare yourself for worship is you walk up in here with the mindset I ain't worthy to walk through the doors the way we prepare ourselves for worship is to remind ourselves of the goodness of God and how fallen and broken we really are so we should have come through those front doors like we are that like we supposed to be here it is by his mercy that and grace that those doors will even open up for you and you can approach this throne of grace. And though we have no reason or right to be here, we still can approach a boldness because of the blood of Jesus. Amen. Glory be to God in the highest. May your hallelujah be unto him this morning. Amen. Amen. So good to be with you this morning, for, this morning for Baptist Church. Praise God for you and your faithfulness here. Welcome to all of our guests. I pray that the Lord will continue to bless you and keep you, that his face will shine upon you, and that you would experience his grace in new and marvelous, fresh ways, and you will see him in new and glorious ways, even upon this morning. This weekend, we're just returning back from our marriage retreat. Uh, we had a wonderful time. Uh, it, it began Friday and ended this morning. So, if you see a couple of us, a little red eyed, folks be partying. Them, them married to be trying to party. I'm getting too old for all that. But we had a good time. Uh, in the Lord, uh, I believe by uh, like God's grace, marriages were strengthened and he will be exalted, uh, and much fruit will be. Reaped from that conference as well. Well, again, I'm grateful to be with you this morning, and as we prepare to dig into the Word, uh, one of the things I have been praying about, like Lord, uh, you have been phenomenal. You took us through that entire book of Galatians, and you taught us so much. So much. You you showed up and you showed out, and how grateful we should be that God even allows us to come near his word and to understand and comprehend just what he has done through justification by faith. It's not because of your performance, not because of your ability that God accepts you, it's because of the shed blood of Jesus and what he has already accomplished on Calvary's cross. Not you, but him. It's almost like where do you go after such an amazing truth? So as I have been praying about, well, what what do we do? Where do we go as a church? The Lord has been opening up my mind and my heart. And it's because of our understanding of the gospel of grace. Because we have received such gospel truth, gospel truth requires a gospel response. Gospel truth requires a gospel response. So what that means is you just can't hear a bunch of stuff about God and be content. But when you comprehend and understand this gospel of grace, that it will propel you, compel you, and move you into action. So my desire is that we will be moved into action. And for the next couple of weeks, my desire is to help us to see, well, what do we do now? What does God expect of us? For a lot of us, we're we're in the middle of decisions and we're trying to figure out, God, what do you want from me? God, what is your will for my life? What is your desire? What should I do? And it can be scary and confusing to try to figure out what God wants you to do, where he wants you to be, and where he wants you to go. And there's an aspect of God's will for your life where it's really specific. God, God's will of what job you should take, who you should marry, where you should live, uh, all, all those type of decisions are, are are really specific to you. And it's those decisions that we don't see in scripture sometimes. But beloved, the majority of what God wants us to do, wants us to do, has already told us what he wants us to do. And for the Christian, there is a revealed will of God that we don't have to run around uh, uh, throwing, shouting up in the air, God, what you want me to do? He's looking down to us and saying, I've already written down what I want you to do. So as Christians, when we look through the scriptures, God has already told us so much. And I believe, I believe that if we just did what God has already told us to do, that we'll figure out the rest. If we just do what God has already told us to do, we'll figure out what job we should have. We'll figure out where we should live and how we should spend our money and who we should marry and where we should date. If we just did what God has already told us to do, I believe, I'm just crazy enough to believe that everything will fall into place. But is that crazy with that Bible? Matthew 6, Seek ye first. The kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added up to you worried about where you should work. You just worry about what God has already told you to do. So as we look into a mini study of the will of God, turn with me in your Bibles to Romans, the 12th chapter. And we'll be honing in on two verses, verses one and two. A familiar text of scripture, but I believe it is foundational, it is key to our understanding of what God wants us to do for our lives. Romans the 12th chapter, beginning of verse 1, if you would stand in honor of the reading of God's word with me this morning. Romans, the 12th chapter, beginning in verse 1. This is the word of God. Please hear the voice of Christ. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this work but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading of his word. You may be seated. Do you want to start this series, tagging this text, this is the will of God. God wants your transformed worship. God wants your transformed worship. Pray with me. Heavenly and Holy Father, we come now. And Father, I ask that you would have mercy on us because of our proud hearts and our haughty spirits. Father, forgive us for our unbelief and doubt that you can't change, folks, that you can't minister to us. Father, help us to believe your word over the word of the world. Father, by the power of your Holy Spirit, I ask that you would give us new eyes to see and ears to hear and that this won't just be another rodeo, but this passage will impact our lives, that we will become true worshipers of yours. Now, Father, we submit ourselves to you, asking that you would have your way in this worship service, that it will indeed be a service of worship. Have mercy on me, your servant, may I speak your glorious truths from on high. In Jesus' precious and holy name we do pray. Amen. Amen. Whenever you start a new job, there is that orientation day and you show up and you wide-eyed and you're excited about the opportunity to, to, to have this new job and you're trying to figure out just what you're supposed to do on the job. So as part of your orientation, they give you a employee handbook and they give you some training. But in that handbook and during that training, you will begin to find out just what your responsibilities are and what job expectations you have. And if you're like me, if you ever had a job or if you ever entered into an organization and, and it was unclear what you were supposed to do, it led to nothing but frustration. You ain't know who to report to. You didn't know what. what how, how was you supposed to perform your job. You don't know how you'll be ranked and rated if you'll be able to get a promotion because sometimes those job expectations are sketchy. But I'm here to let you know when it comes to Serving in the Lord's army, he has made things very clear, abundantly clear. He has given us uh, Old Testament and the New Testament, 66 books in all, letting us know what is required of the Christian. It should be no question or no doubt of what God expects from us. And in the text this morning, we will learn and see just what God wants. And God wants our worship. See, what Paul is doing, he's, he's moving from the indicative to the imperative. He's moving from uh, what is the truth to how you live the truth. He's moving from doctrine to duty. He wants you to know what the gospel is and who this God is. And because of that, he wants you to respond in a certain way, in a certain manner. Romans 1 through 11 Paul has waded through the weighty issues of the gospel and he comes to chapter 12 and he says this thing is about worship. See, in the first chapter of Romans, Paul begins to talk about the implications of the gospel and why we need the gospel. We need the gospel because of our false worship. Our idolatry. And the fact of the matter is, we love stuff and ourselves more than God. So much so, the text says in Romans 1, that we have exchanged the truth for a lie. We're so hyped about ourselves that we're willing to tell God, you're really not the one in charge, but I am. This is false worship. And Paul wants us to move from false worship to true worship here in the 12th chapter. Romans 1 Points out how perverted our worship really is and in chapter 12 of how proper our worship should be. But why does this even matter? Because God wants your worship. God wants our worship the most. And the, how do we know this? We look at Scripture and Genesis. What is God doing? He is not just creating a heaven and an earth. For for you and me to frolic and play in. He is creating a sanctuary. He's creating a temple where the worship and magnification of His name is taking place. He creates the sun and the stars and all the vegetation and all the animals and all the birds and the fish, and He's creating everything. To be this temple where where worship would take place, and in the holy of holies on this new creation, in the middle of Eden, he sets man and woman, and he tells them to be fruitful and multiply. That was in that that would be their worship. Out of obedience to God, I, they're going to work the land and multiply. That was an act of worship, and as they would work the land and spread the glory of God out from the center of Eden all over creation, the worship of God would spread as well because uh, th- those that multiplied would begin to take on the same task of working and worshiping. But something happens in Genesis 3. Man and woman decide that they won't worship God anymore because God, he, he, he has too many rules. That's how we are. God has too many rules. They only have one rule. Don't eat from the tree. They're not good and evil. See, because for the human heart, one rule is one rule too many. So they, wanting to be God themselves, take up, they they eat of this tree, and now they break fellowship and they break worship. But what does God do? God initiates a worship of sacrifice, and he slays the animal. Instead of Adam and Eve's life, the animal's life is taken in they received covering from the blood of the animal and they their nakedness is closed because they now have the skin of the animal. We move along to Exodus and in Exodus, worship of God begins on Sinai but Moses received the instructions of how to build the tabernacle and all of Israel was to be known by their worship of God. He wants our worship. You move to David and Solomon and you transition from tabernacle worship to temple worship and David uh, prepares the way for Solomon to build the temple and in the temple is where the worship of God would take place. In the middle of the temple is that holies of holies and from outside of the holy of holies, the, the, the worship of God would spread forth. Because God is concerned with your worship. We've moved from Eden. We've moved from the tabernacle. We've moved from the temple. Well, where do we worship now as New Testament Christians? 1 Corinthians 6.19 says, oh, Don't you know that your bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit? So no longer is worship external to my body. No longer is worship resident in one location. Now, everywhere I go, the worship of God is supposed to take taking place. Because my body is the temple. Why? Because God wants your worship. And that's easy to say. We throw that word around. Because we think worship is just singing or worship is just showing up to church. What is worship? There's a lot of different uh, definitions to worship, but uh, what I love to do is I like to simplify it. And the definition that I have for worship is setting your focus upon God and responding accordingly. Worship begins when you take your eyes off yourself, you set them on Jesus, and you respond accordingly. When you're when you stop looking at where you at, where you stuck, your situation, your circumstance. And you look at a, at a risen, exalted Savior. You can't help but begin to worship, and you respond accordingly. Here in chapter twelve, the appropriate response to to setting one's eyes and focus upon God is to worship. And we see in the first verse here, he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by what? By the mercies of God. Mercies. God's compassion. God's salvation. See, God is compassionate, not only because he saw your suffering, but he solves our suffering. He don't leave us in our mess. He saw that we were separated and broken. From Him, So he sends Jesus Christ. So when Paul is saying, I beseech you, I beg of you by the mercies of God, he's saying, I beg of you because of the compassion, because of the goodness, because of the, the greatness of what God has already done. When you were lost in your sin, when you were dead to him spiritually, when you weren't thinking about him, he sends Jesus Christ. And what Jesus does, he he lives the life that you cannot live and he, he dies the death that you deserve and he, he takes upon himself the wrath that is coming for those who have sinned against God and he, he places it in the grave, but he doesn't leave it there. He, he rises with all power in his hand and he fills you with a, a righteousness that is not your own that you can stand before God. I beseech you, therefore, by the mercies of God. Paul is saying, because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, you should worship. Have you considered the compassion of God lately? Have you considered how feeble and foul we really are? If, if. If, if, if we were able to look at your thoughts right now to expose you for the fraud that you really are, the fraud that I really am, because there's a certain face that you show everybody else, but, but character, as we learned this weekend, is who you are when you're by yourself. So who are you when you're by yourself and ain't nobody watching? Because that's who you really are. And if you think about who you really are, then you know you need God's compassion. So Paul is saying, because you are busted and disgusted, because of God's compassion and his mercy, we worship. And this goes for the saved and unsaved. This goes for those who don't know Christ and those who know Christ. Those who don't know Christ, you woke up this morning. There was sun shining. You was breathing air. You had gas in your car. You had clothes on your back, food on your table, that common grace that God gives to even those who don't love him, that's compassion. When in that moment we actually deserve wrath, but for the saved it goes even deeper because God has chosen to reveal himself to us. The, The fact that God even shows himself to us is compassion. When I think about the news and you see those beautiful, heartwarming stories about someone in desperate need, they're they're drowning, they're dying, they're about to get hit by a car, something has happened, and they're unable to help themselves, but someone comes and rescues them just in the nick of time and in all the chaos and confusion they don't have a chance to meet but you have those moments on the news where the cameras are there and the person who was rescued gets a chance to talk to the person who rescued them. And in that moment, when they come in the room, their, their eyes light up. Tears come down their face. Why? Because their life was in danger and this person chose to rescue them. Don't you know that our lives have been in danger since birth? Don't you know that... And while we were yet sinners, that Christ died for. Don't you know that our sin separates us from a holy and righteous God? So when we come before our rescuers, certainly we would have bright eyes and a happy countenance. Brokenness, because we know we don't deserve to be rescued in His Majesty. He came to us in our mess. But how do you know? How do you know when you get true worship? Three things I just want to point out from the text of how we know we got true worship. The first thing is gospel-motivated worship is sacrificial. Look here, verse 1. He says, I... I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, what? To present your, your bodies as a living sacrifice, only and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Paul's language here is, is, is full of Old Testament imagery. What he is bringing out is the fact that in Israel, uh, prior to Christ, they would need to sacrifice animals to take care of their sin. They would go and pick out not the worst of the letter, Not the ugliest of the letter. They would go pick the best, one without blemish, one without spot. And they would bring that lamb to the priest. And the the priest would take the lamb and begin to pray over that lamb. And then the priest would would take his knife and slit the throat of the lamb and begin to drain the the blood out of the lamb. And then ultimately the, the entire lamb was chopped into pieces and placed upon the altar to burn. He's bringing out this imagery because what he wants his readers to see is in order to worship, you have to be sacrificed. That Old Testament ritual, it wasn't just priests doing something because they didn't have anything else to do. This was a form of worship. Sacrifice is a form of worship. Of worship, but what Paul says here, he puts a word in the front of sacrifice. He says, "I don't want you to just to burn up once." He says, "You are to be a living sacrifice." The, the, that 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 completely changes the metaphor. Instead of thinking about the dead animal that's gone now, you have to think a living sacrifice. How can something die but then keep living? How can something give up his life but keep stepping? But for those who are in Christ Jesus, we have died to ourselves and we are living now. So what he is saying, in order for you to have worship each and every day, you must die to yourself each and every day. But you get up the next day and you live it out again. So now my life becomes the aroma of worship every single day because I'm I'm dying in the morning. I'm dying at noonday. And I'm dying at night. And I'm getting up and I'm this living aroma. I'm this living worship unto the Lord. We give our bodies to the things we worship. What we do with our bodies is an act of worship. Where, where I lay my body is an altar of worship. The doors I walk in, the places I go, I'm laying my body down on somebody's altar. What Paul is saying If you're going to worship the true and living God, if if you're going to live out the reason that you were truly created, then you're not going to lay down on somebody's bed of worship, but you're going to lay down on his will of worship. That's what we do with our bodies. But not only that, in the Old Testament, that sacrifice was complete. It was the whole animal. It wasn't part of the animal. And I think this is where we get into trouble as Christians. We think we can set part of our bodies on the altar and keep the rest of our bodies off the altar. Well, Lord, I give you my hands today, but the rest of my body is going to be over here. Lord, I I give you my lips today. But as soon as I get home, I'm going to be cussing somebody. Lord, I give you my feet. You tell me where to go. But when I really want to get up and do something, I'm going to get off that altar. A sacrifice was total and complete. Was no going back. Was no option. Because sacrifice meant wholehearted devotion. If you really want to worship, you got to die. Where life is not about yourself, where life is all about Christ and what he desires for you to do. Have you climbed onto the altar of sacrifice lately? Have you? Sacrifice is painful. Sacrifice don't feel good. If you're doing a Christian life and it's easy, then you ain't doing something right. Are you like, oh, you know, I'm just kind of, I'm okay. I ain't stressed. Blessed and highly favored. Got a smile on my face every day. I mean, the people at work, they get on my nerves sometimes, but this Jesus thing, kind of easy. You ain't living a sacrificial life. Just like they say, to really love somebody means you need to sacrifice. I can't say I love you, and if you call me in the middle of the night, I'm not willing to get up. I can't say I care about you if if I can't be inconvenienced by your needs, so so in other words, if if, if we're really going to sacrifice something and and live this Christian life, it's going to cost us something. What have you gave up for Jesus lately? What have we kept on the shelf? What have you taken your hands off of all because Jesus? You uh, you want it? Ha! You desire to go there, but. Just because Jesus said, don't you want, just because he said, stay near you, you, you don't go there. Sacrifice is worship. When we pass over those old sinful ways and, and we press into Jesus, that's worship. Worship is not singing a song on Sunday morning and living like hell the rest of the week. Worship is realizing that the temple of God is within me. The Holy Spirit lives in me. I am a aroma of worship. Now, wherever I go, people should smell my worship. Ah, but when we go places people smell, our stink. Because when we come in the room, we got an attitude. When we up out the room, we got an attitude. People look at you coming. They They want to go in the other room because you got an attitude. But if we're going to be worshipers, people should look at us and be drawn. To that sin. They should be drawn to that worship. Because genuine sacrifice produces worship. Where are we, Forrest? Will we continue to halfway get up on the altar? Because if you halfway get up on the altar, you can't be burnt up. You hold the something back for yourself. But not only does gospel-motivated worship is is sacrificial, but gospel-motivated worship is transformational. Verse 2, he says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. We'll stop right there. This word conformed, shaped, fashioned. When we think about the word conformed, we think about looking exactly like or making ourselves to look like somebody or uh, shaping an idol or shaping a, a sculpture that's what, when we think about conform this but this conformed is the same conform in Romans 8:29 where it says for those whom he foreknew he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers, this this exact likeness. So when he says, do not be conformed to the world, he says, do not be in the exact likeness of this world. When people look at you, they shouldn't see the world first. When people look at your life, it shouldn't smell of the world. You shouldn't look like everybody else. Shouldn't talk like everybody else, and he says conform to this world. World, is not not cosmos as in the the sphere, but he's talking about this age, this system. What Paul is saying is, don't be like everybody else around you every day. 2 Corinthians 4.4 says that the God of this world has blinded their eyes. There is a way that this world is living that Satan has control of for now. And if we find ourselves just moving like everybody else, talking just like everybody else, Paul says you're, you're being conformed to this world. But what's the problem with that? The problem is conformity is a form of worship. This passage is about worship. So when you want to look like everybody else, when you want to talk like everybody else, when when you walk into a room and no one can tell that you love Jesus or you don't love Jesus, well, what you're really doing is you're worshiping this world. You're worshiping this age and, and your desire is to, is to continue to lift up idols that hinder you from loving Jesus. What's the big deal with that? We become what we worship. The very things you, we have our eyes set on, that's what we become. Think about growing up. Think about the crews you used to run with. I, I, I remember, see, I, when I was growing up, I, we didn't have name brand stuff. My parents ain't give me no name brand stuff. Like when I got a new pair of stadiums, I was like, oh, these sweet. Everybody else running run around with Adidas. But I remember all my cousins had some Adidas because Run DMC, they had Adidas. So we had to have Adidas. So all my cousins got these Adidas, and I'm around them all the time. They got two, three, four, five pairs, and I'm looking at them because well, I'm around them all the time, and, and I find myself going home asking over and over again, can I have a pair of Adidas? Mama, Daddy, can I have a pair of Adidas? Well, why do you want some Adidas? Because I just want some. Not, not admitting, I just want some because everybody else got some. In our own little clique, we had a way of worship, and part of that worship was to have Adidas. What does your clique look like? What does your clique worship? What does your crew esteem as, as the utmost? Is, is it glory? Is it Facebook fame? Is it, is it popularity? Is it the new job promotion? What What is your crew worship? Because conformity is a form of worship. This is what Isaiah is talking about in Isaiah six. In Isaiah six, we know we, we we hit our anthem and we think that's us. We think that's us. Send me, I'll go, I'll go. But after that, he says, "Nah, they're not going to hear because they're deaf now. They're not going to see because they can't see now." What is he talking about? He's talking about idols. Idols deaf. They can't hear. Idols are blind. They can't see. And what he's saying is because Israel has had their eyes so set on these idols, they've become deaf and dumb just like these idols. Because they've set their eyes upon worship of idols. When I first came to Louisville, I still had my Midwest speech, articulated a lot of things, but the longer I stayed around here, I just kind of let it go kinda draw stuff now. I'm like this I like this. Earlier in my life I had opportunity to live in London for a while for like over a year and and I found myself beginning to speak properly and enunciating everything and having that type of English kind of twin. I wasn't calling things vitamins, I was calling them vitamins. That's what they call them. Your surroundings will conform you and change your worship. So you think you're just watching TV shows. They're conforming you to a way of belief. You think you're just listening to music. They're conforming you to a way of belief. You you think you're just out shopping for the latest fashion. They're they're conforming you to a way of this life. You think it's it's harmless and and, and there's nothing, no big deal about it. But when, but when you get your child up at 4 a.m. to stand in line for Georgia, just like everybody else, you're saying something. That these shoes are worthy of my worship because I get up early and take care of them. God wants your worship. He says don't be conformed, but be transformed. This word here is the same word as metamorphosis and and. It's that process that the caterpillar goes through to become a butterfly. When we think about the caterpillar, just this bug that kind of crawls on the ground is slow. There's nothing sweet about it. But after it goes through the process of metamorphosis, when you see a butterfly, you don't think about the caliper. You think about the beauty of the butterfly. What Paul is saying, there's a complete change that takes place when you are transformed. See, our goal is not to be like the world. Our goal is to be like the sun. And then Paul begins to transition. He says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. I like this here because he's not saying that you need to just go get a whole lot of books and get educated. What he's saying is you need to submit yourself to the process that God wants to work in your life. This is a passive process. It's passive in the sense that the Holy Spirit is working in you, but it's active in the sense that you need to get on the altar and die. And he will begin to transform you because where the mind goes, the body follows. This weekend at the marriage retreat, we had the opportunity to gather as men and talk about goal setting. And the thing is, if, if you don't make a plan, then you're not going to do nothing in life just kind of aimless and kind of wandering. So we want to focus in on how to make a goal and get there. We're, we're, we're training our minds to look at a goal because we want to get there. In the Christian life, you, can, you don't just wander around. Oh, I'm saved. I love Jesus. God has given you the goal of worship. Where are you heading towards? But what Paul says here that we need to pay attention to is the fact that Conformity actually hinders transformation. If you're wondering why my Christian life is not all that and I'm not spiritually strong and I'm not uh, excited about the Lord all the time, ask yourself, am I conforming to the world? Is your worship still conformed or has it been transformed? So the gospel motivates, gospel Motivated worship is sacrificial. Gospel-motivated worship is transformational. But lastly, gospel-motivated worship is revelational. He says this in the second half of verse 12 where he says, uh, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is the good and acceptable and perfect. What Paul is saying is that when you begin to obey God, He begins to open up things to you. The Holy Spirit begins to bring what they call illumination. You can can see how you should begin to live. You can see the decisions you should make. Once you begin to worship rightly, you will begin to understand what the will of God is for your life. This is what he means by that. By testing, you may discern or you may approve. Uh, by by living uh, a life of worship, you will begin to see that God is right. You will begin to see that once I submit to him, the way I am going is the will of God. Because ultimately, this is a battle for your mind. We live out what we believe. And what we believe, we live out. Your theology affects your biology. What you believe to be true about God affects how I live my life renewed renewed minds are able to understand the will of God gospel submission reveals the will of God for us that's the heart of the passage when we begin to submit and worship to God he will begin to reveal his will for our lives when we desire to find an answer Begin to worship. When we desire to see God's will for our life, begin to worship. He will begin to illuminate and unveil just where he wants you to be. But then lastly, gospel worship takes place not when we look at ourselves, but when we look to Jesus. Jesus is the center of this passage because he is the ultimate object of our worship. When we look to to Jesus, we, we are looking to one who has Already perfected worship. We we look at the one who has already gave his life. When we look to Jesus, we look at the slain lamb. The one whose blood was shed for us. The one who got up on Calvary's cross and died on our behalf. The one who already died on the altar of worship because he said, not my will be done, but thou will be done. The one who has already submitted to the will of God. So when we look to Jesus, his life becomes our life. But if we continue to look to ourselves, when we look to our homeboys and homegirls, we will continue to fall and we will continue to fail. This is the will of God that we would worship. My appeal to us today, beloved, is that we would worship the Savior today. Worship the Savior today. Let us pray. Lord God, thank you for your word. Thank you that is true. Thank you that by your word you mold us, you shape us, you fashion us. Not for ourselves, that we may become objects of worship. So Father, I ask that you have mercy upon us today. Free us from conformity. Free us from the burden of wanting to pursue the false riches of this world. Lead us from false worship to true worship. We ask that you would do a new thing in our hearts today. Jesus, precious and holy name, we do pray.